You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for November 4, Saturday reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Prosecutor says Aurora officer who used neck hold on Elijah McLean should be convicted in his death by Colleen Slevin. Polis lauds Aurora School for top science skills with $50,000 grant and a news about statewide spending boost by Christine O. Community rallies for safety for bicyclists, pedestrians by Nina Josh. Hundreds of Littleton voters receive erroneous ballots, again, by Nina Josh. And following up with miscellaneous articles. Prosecutor says Aurora officer who used neck hold on Elijah McLean should be convicted in his death. A Colorado prosecutor told jurors in closing arguments Friday that a police officer who stopped Elijah McLean put the 23-year-old black man in a neck hold and then abandoned him as his condition deteriorated should be convicted of manslaughter in his 2019 death. Aurora officer Nathan Woodyard is among three officers and two paramedics charged in the death of McLean after protest over the 2020 killing of George Floyd renewed interest in the case. The trial against the two other officers resulted in a split verdict last month, with one convicted of homicide and one acquitted. Woodyard was the first officer to confront McLean as the massage therapist walked home from a convenience store in Aurora. A 17-year-old 911 caller had reported McLean, who was listening to music, wearing a mask, and dancing as he walked, as suspicious. Elijah McLean was walking home. He was dancing. As he told the defendant he was stopping the music to listen, Colorado Assistant Attorney General Jason Slothuber told jurors, there was no need for this escalation of violence. Woodyard put McLean in a neck hold that rendered him temporarily unconscious after he allegedly restrained and went for another officer's gun, a claim prosecutors disputed. McLean was later injected with a fatal overdose of ketamine by paramedics. The defendant's lawyer stressed through the weeks-long trial that the officer stepped away during part of the nighttime confrontation and was not with McLean as his condition worsened and other officers continued to restrain him. Defense attorney Andrew Ho said Woodyard entrusted McLean's care to his fellow officer and the paramedics who used the ketamine. We need to end in-custody deaths. There's been too much violence, and the world will be a better place when that happens. These important facts don't conflict with the fact that Nathan Woodyard did not kill Elijah McLean, Ho said. It's the ketamine that killed Elijah McLean. Woodyard also faces a lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. He could be sentenced to years in prison if convicted on either charge. McLean's mother, Shanine, sat in the front row as the attorneys made their arguments to the jury. Shanine McLean had expressed disappointment after the first trial last month. It ended with Officer Jason Rosenblatt acquitted of all charges and Officer Randy Rodima convicted of the least serious charges he faced, criminally negligent homicide and third-degree assault, which could lead to a sentence of anywhere from probation to prison time. 
Paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Lieutenant Peter Susinknik are scheduled to go on trial later this month. They have pleaded guilty. The coroner's office autopsy report, updated in 2021, found McLean died of an overdose of ketamine that was given after he was forcibly restrained by police. While it found no evidence the police actions contributed to McLean's death, prosecutors presented their own medical expert who said there was a direct link. Dr. Roger Mitchell of Howard University, the former Washington, D.C. coroner, said the police restraint caused a series of cascading health problems, including difficulty breathing and a buildup of acid in McLean's body. Prosecutors have also argued that the police encouraged paramedics to give McLean ketamine by saying he had symptoms, like having increased strength, that indicated a controversial condition known as excited delirium that has been associated with racial bias against black men. In both trials, defense attorneys sought to blame McLean's death on the paramedics. But while attorneys in the first trial suggested McLean bore some responsibility for his medical decline by struggling with police, Woodyard's lawyers, Megan Downing and Ho, have seemed more sympathetic to him. Prosecutors have portrayed Woodyard's actions as abandoning McLean and suggested he was more worried about administrative concerns, such as a possible investigation, rather than how McLean was doing. Unlike the other officers, Woodyard also took the stand, testifying this week that he put McLean in the carotid control hole because he feared for his life after he heard McLean say, I intend to take my power back, and Rodima said, He just grabbed your gun, dude. The defense argued Woodyard had to react to what he heard in the moment. Prosecutors contended McLean never tried to grab an officer's weapon, and it can't be seen in body camera footage, which is shaky and dark before all the cameras fall off during the ensuing struggle. Prosecutors say Woodyard grabbed McLean within eight seconds of getting out of his patrol car without introducing himself or explaining why he wanted to talk to McLean. McLean, seemingly caught off guard, tried to keep walking. The encounter quickly escalated. Colorado Governor Jared Polis surprised students and teachers at Aurora Quest K-8 with a $50,000 grant during an assembly Thursday, aside from spelling out how he wants to boost state budgets for education. Polis celebrated and highlighted the fact that the Aurora Public Schools District Magnet School was one of the top 16 schools in Colorado that performs well in science. He added that students at the school performed at a 50% above average. We want to learn your secrets because we want every school and every student in Colorado to be able to achieve in science, Polis said. Students' hands shot up into the air when Polis asked if they had any suggestions for what to do with the $50,000. One student suggested that the school could buy supplies. Another suggested that they could buy books. I trust the principal and teachers of this building to determine exactly how best to use that, but I have no doubt that they'll make the best use of the money to benefit kids, Michael Giles, the superintendent of Aurora Public Schools, told the Sentinel. Polis also announced Wednesday that he wants to spend $564.1 million on the next budget to strengthen schools. If approved by legislators, Per-pupil funding would increase by an average of $750, 
or $15,500 for a classroom with 22 students. This would top last year's budget increase of $1,019. The governor's proposed budget will also provide $8 million to support STEM education and enrich programs and $5 million for work-based learning. With this budget, we are finally fulfilling our promise to the voters to fully fund our schools, Polis said in a press statement released Wednesday. I am excited to work with the Joint Budget Committee and the General Assembly to increase teacher pay, reduce class size, and make sure every Colorado student has access to an excellent school. Polis said during the Assembly that the proposed budget has already been submitted to the Joint Budget Committee but it won't be taken up by lawmakers until next, Jan next year in January. If approved, schools will see increased funding at the beginning of next school year. I am extremely excited and happy that the proposed budget is fully funding schools. It's my greatest hope that it actually goes through both sides of the House and gets approved because we know that in Colorado we are underfunded. And this is a great effort on Polis' part to get us to where we should be so we can serve our students as best as possible, Giles told the Sentinel. Other things that Polis' proposed budget would do to support Colorado families and children include spending $38.5 million to increase food security for children through the summer EBT program, spending $21.1 million on the Colorado Child Assistance Program, spending $10 million to ensure that more families can access child care expense credits, spending $4.3 million to upgrade and maintain the Universal Preschool Program's IT system. The governor's proposed budget will also increase spending for renewable energy, public safety, and affordable housing. Community rallies for safety for bicyclists, pedestrians. By Nina Josh. In the wake of the tragic crash that recently killed a seventh grade student on his way to school, community members want Littleton's officials to make the streets safer for bicyclists and pedestrians. On the morning of October 17th, a Uslid Middle School student was riding his bike to school when the fatal crash occurred at the intersection of South Alati Street and South Arapaho Drive. The death has left the community reeling, with people leaving candles and flowers at the intersection and holding moments of silence to recognize the student. Several community members in Littleton say the way he died is inexcusably too common. Last year, Colorado reached an all-time high of 115 pedestrian deaths, according to the Colorado Department of Transportation, or CDOT. The data also shows that 15 bicyclists were killed last year. Based on recent data, this year might end up being even deadlier. As of September 30th, there were 87 pedestrian fatalities in the state, nine more than at, the at that time last year, according to CDOT. The Uslid Middle School student isn't the only life lost in Littleton recently. In September, Preston Dunn, a 50-year-old pedestrian, was struck and killed on West Bowles Avenue. 
With recent tragedies, the calls for change are getting louder as advocates want better, safer infrastructure for pedestrians and bicyclists. Collectively, as a city, as citizens, as advisory boards, as council, all of us, we have let our people down, said Matt Duff, a community advocate for safer bike and pedestrian infrastructure. The way that our streets are currently set up is a situation where if people make everyday normal human mistakes, it can cost a life. Complete Streets Duff has been asking for a safer pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure in Littleton for years. He is a member of Vibrant Littleton, a group that advocates for the cause and a father of four. We specifically moved to Littleton because it was a place where our kids could walk or bike to school, he said. With his kids walking and biking to Runyon Elementary School, Uslid Middle School, and Heritage High School, Duff said he knows the paths for kids to school are not safe enough. He said the streets need to be designed as complete streets, offering dedicated space for many modes of transportation, like bikes, pedestrians, and wheelchairs, not just cars. On streets with painted lanes, there are possibilities for interaction points between cars and bikes, he said. Cars can cross over the lines, and parked cars can open their car doors into the bike lane, potentially hitting and even injuring or killing cyclists. One design solution for these routes would be protected bike lanes, Duff said. Protected bike lanes have curbs, elevation differences, or other physical barriers between the bike lane and street in order to reduce interaction between bikes and cars, Duff said. The October 17th crash is under investigation by the Littleton Police Department, so officials have not announced details about how it occurred. Duff said the conversation should not be about who made a mistake, but instead about creating streets where people can make mistakes and not have them lead to death. Especially on routes where children tend to travel, Duff said, this is particularly important. Our best opportunity right now is to start with our education corridors to get kids to school safely, he said. Changing Design Goals and Culture As a member of Littleton's Transportation and Mobility Board, Duff said it would be helpful to have a clear, complete streets framework that city staff and board members would always use when assessing maintenance or developing projects involving streets. Ben Traquar, another community advocate for safer bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, said Littleton could start by looking at national and regional design guidelines that already exist, such as those from the National Association of City Transportation Officials. There are guidelines that say, if you're building a road that looks like this, here's the requirements. It has to have this much sidewalk, it has to have this much bike lane. If you build a bike lane, here's how you have to do it to do it safely, he said. Since some of these guidelines are general or for larger cities, Traquar said Littleton could use them as a starting point and adapt them to fit the city's specific priorities and needs. 
He also said it would be beneficial for the city to hire extra public work staff members who are specifically focused on neighborhood street safety and traffic. Josie Haggerty, who founded the group Littleton's Social Cycle with Traquar, said the issue with the city's current infrastructure is rooted in car culture, which is not unique to Littleton. Littleton was built to accommodate these big vehicles in the 40s, 50s, 60s, she said. Cars have only gotten faster, and people are so dependent on them for transportation. That is a big change that needs to happen, just as a society, to realize that there are a lot of people who can't drive. Age, disability, and economic situations are some factors that play a role in people's ability or desire to drive. Instead of focusing on making it possible for cars to go faster, Traquar and Haggerty said Littleton needs to focus on how to make roads safer for everyone. Traquar highlighted car-centric aspects of road design, such as right turns on red lights, which was started in many states in the 1970s to reduce idling and save gas. The ultimate goal is to make the cars go faster, he said. What we want is to change that in our city to say, cars are going fast enough. You did it. You did a great job. But now we want to change the goal. And rather than focusing purely on how can we make cars get through the streets faster, we want to say, how can we make it safer for all people to use it? People on bikes, people on wheelchairs, people walking. Traquar said pedestrian deaths are not only a Littleton problem. These deaths are on the rise nationwide, as reported by the New York Times. He and his fellow advocates are not trying to assign, assign blame to the city, but instead trying to help find solutions, he said. This is not a Littleton-only issue, and it's not something that's caused by the people in the current city council and the staff engineers, Traquar said but they can fix it. They didn't cause the problem, but they can fix it. Traquar and Haggerty worked with other members of Littleton's social cycle and vibrant Littleton to organize a rally for safer streets on October 28th. We need to make a public stance that, as a community, we're tired of seeing this, Haggerty said. Community members laid down their bicycles in front of Littleton Public Schools headquarters to call for fundamental changes in community policy around road design and safety. The City's Plan For Mayor Kyle Schlatchler, the recent crash hit close to home. His son is a 7th grader who bikes to Uslid Middle School each day and knew the student who died recently. Schlatchler said he also uses a bike as transportation regularly. Schlatchler has been advocating for safer bike and pedestrian infrastructure for years, both as mayor and as a city council member before that. He said he is listening to the community advocates calling for change. I hear them. I've been listening to them for the last couple of years here. And I will continue to advocate for the policies that they are pushing for, he said. Schlatchler said he supports the idea of protected bike lanes, which he has heard suggested from members of the community. He said he would especially like to see protected bike lanes on routes where kids bike to school, like Windermere, Alati, and Cayley. 
Before the October 28th rally, city staff was starting to reprioritize its work to begin accelerating plans for bike and pedestrian safety, city manager Jim Becklenburg said. He said a priority for 2024 will be creating a new bicycle and pedestrian master plan. As soon as our new city council is seated, we're planning one of their first study sessions to focus on this topic, he said, specifically to really articulate for us the vision and what that new priority for bicycle and pedestrian safety looks like as we go forward. The city's 2019 transportation master plan included more than 70 projects for bike and pedestrian safety, of which 34 have been funded, planned, or installed, Blackenberg said. But the city is aspiring for a new level of bike safety, which will build on this work, Blecklenburg said. This is something I've been advocating for, Schlotzler said. I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve the bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure in the city. And I think this, unfortunately, is an event that is going to hopefully spur some even more dramatic investments into that infrastructure. First steps towards the new bicycle and pedestrian master plan were already in the works before recent deaths, Slotchler said. But now, the city is taking an approach with more urgency. Becklenburg said the city plans to assess design ideas from around the country and will likely have a community forum in the coming months to hear what citizens want as they create a new plan for bike and pedestrian safety. Some advocates have said that the city has hesitated in the past to take rapid steps towards safer infrastructure because of costs and lack of equipment for plowing. Becklenburg said the city would assess these costs as it faces the challenge of protecting cyclists at a higher level than it has historically. Acknowledging that many people rely on cars and do not want to be inconvenienced by changes, Schlotzler said it's important to remember the consequences of this topic. There has to be a kind of mindset change that we are going to prioritize the safety and the lives of people that are on bicycles and walking around our community, he said. I think having a priority of people's lives over being able to drive as quickly and as fast as people want is important, and a sacrifice that I think that we should make. With only days before the election, the Arapahoe County Clerk's Office discovered that it sent hundreds of erroneous ballots to Littleton voters, just over a week after discovering an earlier batch of problematic ballots. The error affected approximately 400 voters in City Council District 2. These voters received ballots without the District 2 City Council race, in which Robert Reichardt is running unopposed. The county announced the error on its voting website on November 2nd, only days before the November 7th election. The City of Littleton contracted with the county to run the election. About a week prior, the county learned that it had made a similar mistake in District 4, where about 175 voters received ballots without the District 4 race, in which Andrea Vukovic Peters is running unopposed. County officials say both errors were likely due to mistakes in adjusting the voter rolls or lists or voter information after the city's recent redistricting process. Littleton adjusted its city council district boundaries over the summer in response to recent census data, as is customary to do every decade. 
Littleton City Clerk Colleen Norton declined to comment for this story and referred media questions to Arapahoe County, where the Littleton Independent was told that both city and county officials failed to catch the error. Arapahoe County Clerk Joan Lopez said the ballot errors were caused by human mistakes. Elections are managed by human beings, she said, and any human makes mistakes, right? But I'm telling you right now that Arapahoe County has done everything they can to make sure that these voters get their voices heard and have been completely transparent about the error. What happened? Bill Mast, Arapahoe County's Deputy Director of Elections, said neither the county clerk's office staff nor the city clerk's office caught the recent error when they were reviewing voter rolls for the election. He said the process for updating voter rolls in the county involved overlaying a map of the new city council district boundaries on a map of the old district boundaries. County staff members looked at the areas of change and made a list of the addresses that would be changing districts. They moved these addresses from one district to another in their system and then checked them against the list in a process meant to make sure all addresses had been moved, except the list was incomplete, so they failed to move some addresses to their new districts. I don't think there's a very good excuse for that, Mast said. We know that our process needs to be updated. We have updated it, and I think we probably need to continue to improve upon that process. Matz said the error was probably rooted in a failure to recognize that addresses within the Downtown Development Authority District, which was created last year, needed to be split into two different city council districts. Mast said this is the county's best guess of what happened based on the information currently available, but staff will continue to research the issue to identify the root cause. After the county updated the voter rolls, it sent that data to Littleton City Clerk staff to verify that voter information was correct before the election, Mast said. And again, another office missed the mistake as the city clerk's office failed to correct the errors. Norton did not give information on what happened in this process. Mast said election officials learned about the ballot errors from voters who realized their ballots did not include the correct races. Mast said that when county staff corrected the first error concerning District 4 during the week of October 24th, they did not suspect an unrelated error in another part of the city, the similar District 2 error that was just revealed. We believe that we had identified an isolated incident, identified the extent of it, made those corrections, and moved forward in the first round, Mast said. Going forward. Mast said the county has made corrections to its process to in hopes of preventing similar errors from occurring in the future. He said in addition to checking the voter rolls against the elections office's own data, the staff will check their information against the county's other GIS data to ensure they are correcting any discrepancies between databases. He said they also hope to provide more comprehensive data to the city for verification purposes. We're going to do that ahead of any potential election cycle or participation so that we have as much runway leading up to their involvement 
and any ballot that, that affects Arapahoe County citizens well in advance of the election cycle, he said. Mast said the county has made every effort to be transparent about its processes, its mistakes, and how people are impacted. Arapahoe County posted a press release, which initially identified the wrong district, about the second error, November 2nd, on the county's voting website, but did not post about the mistake on social media. Tom Skelly, a spokesperson for the Arapahoe County Clerk and Recorder's Office, said county staff discussed posting the announcement on social media and decided against it. You can put a little bit of completely accurate information out on social media, and the next thing you know, people are sharing it, retweeting it, and using it as misinformation or malinformation, he said. How to vote if you received an incorrect ballot. Mast said the county reached out to affected voters for whom the county had contact information to edu educate them on how to proceed. The county is offering opportunities for eligible voters to obtain a new ballot containing the District 2 contest. While the outcome for the race is not in doubt and will not be affected by this error, Clerks in both the county and city offices appreciate that all active registered voters have the right to vote in every contest for which they are eligible, the press release states. Voters in the affected area who returned their original ballot after November 1st will have their ballots held until election night. Since it is too late for the county to mail new ballots, as it did to correct the error last week, Voters can obtain a new ballot at any Arapahoe County Voter Service and Polling Center. Upon receipt of the second ballot, election officials will void the first ballot, the press release states. If voters from the affected, affected district do not vote a second ballot, their first ballot will not be counted. Voters whose ballots were received on or before November 1st will not have the opportunity to vote a new ballot, as those ballots have already been processed. Castle Rock Man Searches 24 Days for Lost Dog by Haley Lena For 24 days, one Castle Rock dog survived rough terrain, faced bears, coyotes, and rattlesnakes. And during that time, owner Derek Brendlinger dedicated his life to re reuniting with his dog, even if it meant exhausting all his vacation time. Countless individuals, which included drone experts who flew their drones in their free time, dedicated themselves to search for the dog named Monica. But Monica's road to recovery has not been without challenges. Brendlinger was on his way home from visiting family in Utah when he got a call from his mom that his boxer had gotten out and was missing. So I got back and then started to search pretty much instantly, said Brendlinger. Brendlinger's home backs up to an open space in which the Red Hawk Ridge Golf Course also backs up to. The terrain also consisted of the Quarry Mesa. The first night, when Brendlinger was calling Monica's name, he heard coyotes howling and he immediately thought she was in trouble. As he kept calling her name, he heard what he describes as a violent dog cry that only got louder. Brendlinger then ran up to the mesa and broke his foot in three places. 
Brendlinger made a next-door post about Monica, which reached nearly 48,000 views. Help soon came as Monica's adoption agency, Hobo Boxer Rescue, sprang into action, hanging up flyers and actively searching the area. John Holland, the superintendent of Red Hawk Ridge Golf Course, didn't know Brendlinger but saw the flyers of his missing dog and took action. As the search moved into its second week, Brendlinger called the golf course to ask if they could assist in the search. Simultaneously, a woman named Amy Johnson, who volunteers to rescue dogs, contracted Brendlinger and wanted to help. Game cameras were set up in hopes to narrow down Monica's patterns, and the cameras would send photos to their cell phones. Through this whole thing, she would kind of disappear for a couple of days, and then there would be a sighting of her, said Holland. It became evident to them that Monica would hide during the day and venture out at night to find food and water. During the time of the months-long search, there was an aggressive coyote that was harassing dog walkers during the day, said Holland. They even found bear tracks and Monica's tracks in the same sand trap on the golf course as there was a bear roaming around. We were quite concerned about her safety, said Holland, but she proved to be quite the survivor out there. A smoker was donated to them so they could smoke meat to entice Monica and keep her close. As weeks passed, the search became more intense and the lack of sightings made it challenging to remain positive, said Holland. Brendlinger would spend nights sleeping on the golf course and drive around until the early morning. The Castle Rock Police Department pulled him over on multiple occasions as Brendlinger believed they thought he was casing neighborhoods. However, the police also aided in the search. There was one situation where Brendlinger was able to get in front of Monica, but Holland witnessed her struggle to recognize him. Lost dogs can often develop a condition known as lizard brain, said Holland. This is when their overly stimulated brain sees everything as a threat and they go into survival mode. Leading up to the day they found her, they went four days without a sighting, but just after 6 p.m. on September 6th, a game camera f captured Monica feeding from one of the kibble stations. Bredlinger was at work when Monica had gone into the dog trap. As Holland, Johnson, and another volunteer approached Monica, she was barking at them. They brought her down to the maintenance barn where they let her out and she ran around a couple of times. The second Derek arrived, Monica jumped into his arms. With her ribs visible, Monica had lost about 21 pounds, which made it difficult for her to adjust to a normal diet. She also had a large bump on her head, a gash on her head, and other scratches. Since reconnecting with her owner, Monica has been exhibiting resource-guarding behavior, which is common among dogs who have experienced traumatic events. In addition to being protective over her toys, Bredlinger thinks she has, has post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. She barks at literally nothing, said Bredlinger. She doesn't like to go outside at night. Bredlinger and Holland are moved by the outpouring of support from the community in aiding her rescue. I have never in my life seen somebody look for their dog as hard as Derek did, said Holland. 
When you see somebody investing literally everything they have to find their animal and having that kind of compassion for their animal, there's nothing you can do but help them. Since Monica's rescue, Brendlinger has gone on other dog rescues with Johnson. Additionally, a GoFundMe was created for the recovery team that aided in Monica's rescue. Holland and Bredlinger encourage others to support volunteers who work in dog rescues as these nonprofits require assistance with game cameras, kibble, traps, flyers, and more. Ellingbo retires after decades of sharing love of arts with readers by Thelma Grimes. Sonia Ellingbo, a longtime voice in the Denver area's art and entertainment world, Never let age be an obstacle in the days preceding the 2020 pandemic shutdowns. As she made her way to her office in Inglewood each weekday with her walking stick and bright-colored necklaces, Ellingbo, with her signature bright laugh and engaging conversational style, would sit at her window view desk to write stories about whatever show or art exhibit she had recently seen, and to put together a weekly column that brought readers into the world of culture around the Denver metro area. From the time the pandemic shutdowns began, she continued her work from home as she shared her stories with readers of South Metro newspapers. Ellingbo, a Littleton resident since 1956, recently announced her retirement from Colorado Community Media. She has played a part in her beloved art world through her articles since at least 1989, when she was with what was then a one-paper operation known as the Littleton Times. Sonia has been a treasure to the arts community, said Linda Shapley, publisher of Colorado Community Media. She will be missed but none more than by the dedicated readers who for decades respected the trust and trusted her articles to open up their worlds to beauty and creativity. Ellingbo, 93, talked about her love of art, her writing career, and her devotion to the Littleton community in a recent interview with Colorado Community Media. She recalled how she got into newspaper writing, starting with an editor who had been with a Littleton Independent but was not happy with the newspaper's direction and decided to start the Littleton Times, bringing Ellingbo with her. Ellingbo joked about having a problem with putting too many commas in her articles and having to adjust from writing academic papers to writing articles for the general public. Ellingbo said she loves the arts, wanted to ask questions, and learn more about local government, and happily dived into the journalism world. When I was young, I went to summer drama classes, and while I did not want to perform, I knew it was something I wanted to do, she said. I always enjoyed going to plays and the entertainment world. In her home on October 27th, with a black cat sleeping soundly on her lap, Ellingbo spoke fondly about her career and experiences, surrounded by paintings done by her family, herself, and a mountain of books in various spots showing her love of learning and academics. Eventually, the Littleton Times was bought by Jerry and Anne Healy, who said they owe much of their success to Ellingbo because she was there to connect them throughout the community and even provided office space for them to use in her bookstore off Curtis Street. 
Ellingbow managed the bookstore in Littleton for 16 years. Anne recalled being new to Littleton as she attributed their success to Ellingbow's willingness to help them. The Healy's eventually purchased the Littleton Independent, growing into what became Colorado Community Media, with 24 community newspapers along the Front Range. In 2021, the couple sold Colorado Community Media to the Colorado News Conservancy. Anne said there was a key group of Littleton residents who loved their local newspaper, and Ellingbow played a big role in connecting the Healy's with the right people. We quickly became involved in the community, Anne said. Ellingbow's historical and background knowledge of, Nil- of Littleton was endless. She was involved in everything. She has always been kind, patient, and really fun. She was always so interested in culture. Besides thinking of Ellingbow for her bright-colored jewelry choices, many who have worked with her over the last few decades also treasure her as a matriarch of the Littleton community. After hearing of her retirement, Peggy Dietz, head of the Depot Art Center in Littleton, said, I think of Sonia as not only a lovely friend, but Littleton's own Google. She retains the living history of our community, remembering the famous, the infamous, and the everyday events. As a devoted member of the Depot Art Gallery, we always had her input and devotion, a true lover of the arts, and an excellent writer. Chris Roeder, a former editor for Colorado Community Media, worked with Ellingbow from 2007 to 2021. Sonia's unwavering advocacy for the metro area arts scene and the community of Littleton will likely never be duplicated, he said. Sonia did more than write for the newspapers. She served as an invaluable resource for her colleagues, whether it be passing along news tips or providing historical context. Roeder, a newcomer to Colorado in 2007, remembers his second day on the job as an editor of the South Metro Publications. We got in Sonia's car, and she took me on a quick tour around Littleton, he said. I quickly learned how important the community and its history are to her. Since the city isn't geographically very big, the drive didn't last long, but it left a lasting impression on me. For the Healy's, from the time they were a couple in their early 30s trying to get started, Anne said her relationship with Ellingbow developed into a strong, meaningful friendship built on admiration and respect. She's had challenges at times, but has always persevered, Anne said. She's an amazing woman. She is a true community pillar. It's hard to find the words to describe how much I think of her and admire her. I am just glad our paths crossed. I just hope I can be like her when I am in my 90s. Former Littleton Mayor Susan Thornton said Ellingbow's notices and reviews have strengthened both the art community and the community at large over the years. She has been the go-to voice for residents who don't want to miss the latest show, opening event, or play, Thornton said. Her impact on the community has been profound. Ellingbow said she just wanted to bring art into the communities across the Denver metro area. 
Looking back to when she was seven, Ellingbo said her mother, an artist, encouraged creativity and allowed young Sonia to paint and decorate her walls. From an early age, Ellingbo was immersed in culture, traveling Europe, seeing plays, and loving all of it. As a writer, Ellingbo said she has loved seeing the arts, culture, and an entertainment world grow up around her. She said Lone Tree, Parker, and many other communities have invested in the arts, giving her more to write about as the years went on. As I wrote, it made me constantly on the lookout for ideas over the years, Ellingbo said. You gain this curiosity. You want to know how they do that. How do they make that? It spreads in all directions. At 93, Ellingbo said she is not able to attend shows as often as she wants, but still tries to get out with her daughter when she can. With four children, numerous grandchildren, and a growing number of great-grandchildren, Ellingbo proudly talked about instilling her love of the arts into her children, bragging about her son who currently travels the world. While health has prevented her from traveling as much as she would like in recent years, Ellingbo followed the example of, of her parents in traveling with her own children to some of her favorite places in Europe and Asia. I'm glad I have been lucky enough to do things like that, she said. However, when asked where her favorite place to travel is, Ellingbo, sticking with her love of Colorado, said she loves the western part of her state. As she wraps up her writing career, Ellingbo said her hope is that someone else will take on the challenge and keep the art world alive as she has tried to do for so many years. I always wanted to help get the word out and just tell people about all these great shows, she said. The paper has always been supportive when I've worked to get people interested and caring about art. I hope Littleton and the area can stay supportive and connected in bringing art to people. Arapahoe County shines a light on veterans and highlight services. County will light buildings green as part of National Initiative by Nina Josh. Starting November 6th, people passing by Arapahoe County buildings will notice them illuminated in green light. The county will light them as part of a week-long National Operation Greenlight initiative organized by the National Association of Counties. The goal of the initiative is to show support for military veterans, raise awareness about the unique challenges faced by veterans, and help connect them to resources. It's basically an effort to influence our citizens to understand the sacrifices of veterans and their families and to let veterans know that there's an opportunity to come in and we can help you, said District 5 Commissioner Bill Holden. As a disabled veteran, Holden said he understands firsthand the challenges that many veterans face and he has dedicated much of his life in public service to advocating for them. He said part of the purpose of the Greenlight Initiative is to make veterans aware of the services the county offers. It gives us an opportunity to, to reach out to the veteran community and say, hey, there's an opportunity to come in and get some free services that will help you with a variety of benefits that you're eligible for, he said. The county's Veterans Services Office can help connect veterans to disability compensation, 
mental health resources, substance abuse recovery programs, student loans, survivor pensions, and job training and opportunities, Holden said. The office, which is staffed by veterans, helps veterans present claims and applications to the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs for these benefits. A lot of veterans, when they get out, they just want to forget about their service, Holden said. Many of them may very well be eligible as a result of their military service, and there's benefits and opportunities to assist them and their families to cope with those issues. Arapahoe County has assisted veterans on 643 claims so far in 2023 and anticipates hundreds of additional claims to be filed before the end of the year, according to a press release. Holden also highlighted the Arapahoe Douglas Works Workforce Center, which offers career assistance and has a specific program for veterans and qualifying spouses. Holden encouraged community members who are interested in supporting veterans to light a green light at their homes or businesses as part of the initiative. When people ask, it gives them the opportunity to explain why they did that, he said. He said community members can also support veterans by signing up for volunteer opportunities that directly assist veterans. More information about the county's veterans services is available at arapahogov.com forward slash veterans. Swedish Medical Center, HCA Health One, team up to open the Sarah Cannon Center Pavilion to expand comprehensive cancer care. By Elizabeth Slay. Swedish Medical Center and HCA Health One recently celebrated the opening of the new Sarah Cannon Cancer Pavilion, which will offer comprehensive cancer care for people in one location. Swedish Medical Center held a ribbon cutting ceremony on October 26th. According to the press release, the new pavilion is a $15 million investment and part of a larger $100 million capital improvement project currently underway at Swedish Medical Center. Dr. Paul van der Sloot, a medical professional at the facility, said it feels amazing to have the pavilion open after years of planning. It symbolizes the current state-of-the-art cancer care where patients can get all their care in one place where the care team can work closely together to give the best in all aspects of care in a way that is convenient and efficient, Vandersloot said. It solidifies Swedish as a cancer care destination for local patients and for patients from the surrounding states. He said the project has been in the works for longer than he had even been at Swedish, which is more than four and a half years. With COVID and supply chain issues, it has taken perseverance to bring this to fruition, Vandersloot said. It has also taken leaders with long-term vision to make this happen. The medical professional said he is looking forward to the many services the pavilion will offer people and how teams will be able to come together. I think it will enable patients to see multiple providers in one visit a huge benefit particularly for our elderly patients and patients coming from long distances, Vander Der Sloot said. I think it just brings all of our cancer teams closer together, allowing us to learn from one another and truly bring the best 
interdisciplinary care to our patients. I think it is also helpful in promoting a culture of kindness, respect, compassion, and hope for our patients. Going forward, Vandersloot said he hopes Swedish Medical Center can continue to develop programs with local teams and use the national scale and leverage of HCA and Sarah Canyon to continue to create a system of great programs where we share our expertise with our colleagues and teams nationally for the benefit of our patients. Chief Operating Officer Carl Leshtichkow said the new pavilion will benefit both patients and physicians. Our patients and the community deserve the best, the best care, the best teams, and the best technologies, Lestukyo said. I like to think about how we care for the patients and their families and caretakers. How do we remove as many unpleasant tasks, external inputs, or environmental impacts from this journey as possible, so that people can focus on the primary goal, beat cancer. Listkio said he is proud of the care and the medical professionals and colleagues give the community. Furthermore, the manifestation of a bricks-and-mortar environment intensifies the interrelationships among the treatment teams. Finally, this building provides us a platform to address the emotional impact on our teams, caregivers, and physicians build relationships and report with these families, he said. Listico said the new facility will offer various services including navigation and education, diagnostics, interventional, rehabilitation, and survivorship. There should be no reason patients need to deal with other logistical concerns and our team of care providers can immediately be involved in the downstream tasks when needed, Listisco said. He explained the idea for the specific facility was discussed with HealthPeak in early 2020, but the medical staff has discussed the concept for over 10 years. What drove action was everyone delivering on their commitments to make that vision a reality, he said. I'm looking forward to our survivorship results getting better, to letters that acknowledge our teams and the good work we've done, to have to find creative strategies for parking because the community wants to take full advantage of the resources we have to battle cancer together. Thank you for joining us for the Arapahoe County News. My name is Tim Elliott. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.